Welcome to Rocco Radio. I'm Jason Bryan, and you're listening to Well Connected. We all know that the Internet of Things has a role in revolutionizing people's lives, with new initiatives that potentially can save time, but also keep us healthy. But in some regions of the world, access to smartphones isn't even that mature yet, and we have to find other means to support people with valuable information that can truly save lives. Recently, I had the real pleasure to interview Hannah Metcalf, country manager of Tanzania and Kenya at Viaimo. The company's motto is changing lives via mobile. And in our interview, Hannah really gave us some insights into the African telecoms market and how the operators working there with companies like Viaimo can truly make a difference to people's lives. It wasn't just the fact that these people had got access to a mobile phone. It was like they'd got access to a whole world that they'd never experienced. It's a pleasure to be here with Hannah Metcalf, who is the country manager of Tanzania and Kenya at Viaimo. I said that correct, didn't I, Hannah? Yes, Viaimo, yes. Can you tell me a little bit more about Viaimo? Yeah, exactly. So Viaimo was previously known as Boto Mobile up until about five months ago. And then over the period of the last year, we've been collaborating with a number of different uh, leaders in the technology field. And it was the decision was made to rebrand and kind of expand what we were already doing in a number of markets. The Armo takes the most basic of mobile phones and utilizes them for the purposes of either data collection or for the provision of public service information. So we're basically reaching people in remote and isolated communities who may not previously have been included in data collection efforts or may have never previously had an education or access to vital pieces of information in the space of health, agriculture, education, or financial uh, inclusion, for example. So can you give me an example of a typical message or information that would be passed between the parties? Yeah, so a good example is for uh, a mother or father is putting their child to bed They want to know about what they need to do to ensure that their child can reduce the chances of getting malaria. And while maybe previously message campaigns have been put out across on radio or perhaps in health clinics, the challenge is that you're not necessarily getting information to those people at a particular time of need. So you might be able to predict that a, a higher than normal amount of people might be calling into the radio around dinner time, but you're not necessarily sure that's the time that they're putting their child to bed, for example. But we provide a mobile service, which is commonly known as 3G1, where people can call in to retrieve information. So they could call in to retrieve information about minimizing the risk for their child to get malaria, but they could also then call in if they expect that their child may actually have malaria. And while we don't necessarily replace the doctor in any means, we can provide information that has been created by our content matter experts, local or international health organizations, and have the messages validated by the relevant ministries, and then put that up on our mobile service for people to access at their convenience. So typical message on that service would be between 60 to 90 seconds long, and people could call in, and we try and stylize them so it's not just a boring kind of talking Mm. at type message. We often try and do dialogue. We use local voice talent. And we often 
or almost always provide the information on the service in local languages. So it's kind of like an IVR-style solution? Exactly. So the person calls in and it says, if you'd like to listen to health information, press one, agriculture information, press two, education, press three, and so forth. I guess a lot of people around the world consider that, or African countries, most of them, are quite advanced in telecoms. You know, there's, of course, many operators in the region. Why is this kind of service needed and why wouldn't they be able to get it from their mobile or data services? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think a lot of the media now is focusing on smartphone penetration. And while that is definitely increasing, I'd argue that it's perhaps not increasing at the rate that people are predicting. And with this type of information, we're really trying to target the most underserved communities. And often in those underserved communities, the chances are that they, if Apple got access to a phone, it's most likely going to be your basic Nokia or whatever the equivalent is now, um, handset. And also the other area of consideration is that even if smartphone devices are reducing in price and accessibility is increasing, there's also the consideration about charging those types of handsets and the battery life on a smartphone compared to the battery life on a basic handset um, varies significantly. And if we're considering the cost of electricity and the means in which to, to, to charge a phone, then we believe that it's still important to be able to access information on the most basic of handsets. Hannah, this is really fascinating. I was thinking to myself, how does anybody get into this kind of area? What's your story? How did you first get into the telecom space? Can you take us back a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So I would love to be able to say that I set on this journey and, and telecoms was my goal, but, but it didn't really work out like that. I graduated from Exeter University and I had previously been going back and forth and doing work in the Middle East. So primarily in the Palestinian territories and um, in Jordan and a little bit of Syria as well. And decided it was during the time of the Arab Spring and decided actually at the age of 21, I wasn't an expert in anything and certainly wasn't an expert to support the current climate that was going on in the Middle East. And I'd been doing a bit of work with Intel with a laptop per child initiative that was going on, um, particularly in uh, the West Bank and Gaza. So I was familiar or slowly dipping my toe in the areas of how technology was supporting these types of communities. But when I came back to the UK, I very much said to myself that I just need to be able to get transferable skills. I just needed a steady job, stop paying off my student loan and, and kind of get myself on a career path. And so maybe three months being back, a recruitment agency that I signed up for approached me about a job at the GSMA. Uh, the Trade Association for Mobile Network Operators. And I'd never heard of GSMA, and I certainly mm -hmm. had no idea about technology or whether working for a mobile network operator would ever interest me. But I said, let me go to the job and, and see what it entails. I was working on, at the beginning, a program called Connected Living, which was focusing on how mobile technology um, can be used to leverage other industries. So at the time, it was health, education, smart cities, and automotive. Yeah. And it dabbled a little bit in the developing countries, but it was mainly focusing on Europe um, and America. But obviously, the GSMA is fantastic in, in the sense that it's so varied in the work that it does. And yes, it's working in mobile 
telecoms, but at the same time, it's working across so many different things. And once I got access and started working at the GSMA, I also became familiar with what's known as the mobile for development space. Obviously, that whole program at the GSMA fascinated me. And within a year of being at the company, I was able to apply internally for a job working on the mobile development intelligence team, which later got called M4D Impact. That team was fascinating in particular because it was basically taking mobile and what mobile offers and saying, how can we better use mobile for socioeconomic needs, but at the same time support mobile network operators to expand the impact that they can have on their customers. So uh, that whole uh, department worked in agriculture, health, gender, disaster response, utilities. And so with MDI, Mobile for Development Intelligence, I was able to work across all of those different program teams. And our job was to basically get data. One of my main roles was to map on a tracker all of the different products and services that were coming into the market across Africa and Asia. And I was incredibly lucky to travel an incredible amount to various different countries, researching how mobile was changing the lives of people working in various different communities. So That must have been fascinating. Yeah. What were some of the key differences that you saw? I think the most amazing thing was that often in a lot of the cases and the partners that we were working with, they were giving access to services and information to people that had never had it before. So while in Europe and America, mobile phones are a vital tool that we all value and a lot of us probably couldn't live without. At the same time, it wasn't just the fact that these people had got access to a mobile phone. It was like they'd got access to a whole world that they'd never experienced. So I went to India and I worked with an organization called Nextdrop, which was changing the way in which people could get information on when water was going to be available in their area of Bangalore. People had been having to give up their jobs because they couldn't risk not being in when the water was turned on in their area. And the fact that a service came to them through their mobile phone allowed them to know, okay, at 10 a.m. on Tuesday, water's coming to my house so I can continue to work. Or similarly, when we went to Madagascar and we were researching gender-based violence, I would sit with communities and women and hear about the fact that they didn't know that women and men had the same rights in the eyes of the Malagasy law. And so the fact that they got that information through their phone really highlighted to me the power in which a phone can have in these communities and actually probably more than it does back home in the UK or in the US. Yeah, when we think about mobile engagement today, you know, we think about getting a notification for a flight or that must have been so interesting to be involved in. Absolutely. And, you know, for us, it's getting a message saying that your parcel is going to be delivered. In other communities, it's getting a message to tell you that a cyclone is on its way or, you know, that you're getting information about malaria or climate adaptive processes for your farming. And it's also offering huge opportunities for mobile network operators. This work that the GSMA does and the research that we were able to provide allows them to know their customers in a better way, to help them design services that could better target their, their end users. And it was a really unique opportunity to be able to go and do monitoring and evaluation on this and not only provide that back to third-party partners, but also to the operators themselves. Yeah, I mean, I see nowadays in recent years, you know, we see Nigeria come, Africa come, 
you know, events like this. And it seems there is much more inclusion of African MNOs and companies than maybe there was before, because many decisions, at least on, from my perspective, I always worked in GSMA standards. You know, we were making decisions for the whole world on how mobile services would work. And there wasn't that much involvement from the African community because simply it was difficult to get engagement because you had to travel and there was also some restrictions on travel. And it's really reassuring to see that actually African operators are involved and are getting standards developed with their specific needs in mind. Absolutely. And I think from my experience of mobile MNOs in Africa and Asia, they are in a lot of ways, very committed to their customers and ensuring that their customers are brought the best. And they were open. And I think the best thing about the GSMA is it's, a, it's not a competitor. It works for the m but it also can support third-party providers. So at working for the GSMA, you've got access to so much that you might otherwise get if you were working for a third-party provider or if you're working for a competitor. Everyone's willing to talk to you because you have this kind of capability to take findings and lessons learned and share them back into the community to hopefully improve the industry for a whole. What was it that inspired you to do this work in Africa? What was it that made you want to go to Africa and take on these challenges? I think I've always been fascinated. I studied politics and international relations at university and I've always been fascinated by Africa and the Middle East and just the culture and the communities that you get exposed to and I guess the vast difference compared to back home was always something that really interested me. And I think when I left university, I was very set on working in charity or working for an international NGO and going kind of down the AIDS route. However, my experience in the Middle East and definitely my experience since has made me realize the problems of that industry. I think there's some amazing work that's done, but it didn't really fit with the work that I wanted to do. I got incredibly frustrated with inefficiencies of some organizations and and potentially the use of funds in that not-for-profit space and then so when I worked for the GSMA which is a trade association so it's not really a for-profit but it definitely obviously works for MNOs which are for-profit. I got exposed to a different way of working in these countries and I learned that actually social enterprises or sustainable businesses that still have a focus on doing something good but are sustainably run for profit actually can have the biggest impact and I love tech now and I'm really fascinated by it and I had to install a server back in April and I and I kept saying to myself when is someone going to realize they only have a politics (laughs) and there I am surrounded by tables uh, installing a server for one of our mobile products it's an amazing space pretty hard to explain day to day to people that aren't in the industry but I definitely see now that I'm better aligned in a tech for profit space, but still very closely interested in Africa and Asia. And I'm very kind of still very lucky to still be able to work in these markets. In the four or five years that you've been involved in projects in Africa, what changes have you seen in the telecom space? Is the smartphone going to replace or has it already replaced the PC as a main form of access to the internet? I would definitely argue that if people are going to get access to the internet, their first time is most likely going to be on a mobile phone. I think there's a danger of assuming that the rate of which that's happening is faster than what is happening on the ground. 
for example, Dar es Salaam, capital of Tanzania, has 4G um, since coming back to London for Christmas. I think the 4G there is better than what I've experienced in London. So in terms of quality in the capital cities, that's definitely there. And people definitely do have access to, if not smartphones, feature phones. But for the work that we do and for the data that we want to collect in the communities that are a focus to our partners, we are still seeing that not everyone will have a mobile phone. And if a household does have a mobile phone, the chances are it still is a basic. Where we focus on interactive voice response and SMS, but primarily IVR, and at the same time, we're still we're developing services and a smartphone solution so that we can replace that with the app or the smartphone alternative when we deem the market mature enough to do that. But our clients and the users that we target, are, we're still very much seeing that basic habits are what is available at the moment. And I think the other thing to consider, the digital literacy of the, I don't want to insult or patronize anyone from my experience to say that people are still struggling to use smartphones, even if they do have access to them and understanding what's available to them. So I don't think Africa will won't get there, but I just don't think maybe it's happening at the rate that perhaps we're deceived to believe it is. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. I mean, there's very few people who fully understand what their device is able to do. And especially in the roaming scenario, they really don't understand what's happening if they roam. So coming up to the present day, to Viamo, is it something recent? Is it a company that just started or has it been moving along gently in the background for a few years? Viamo, which was up until five months ago known as Photo Mobile, um, has been about now for about five years. Its origins were in northern Ghana and then it moved beyond that West Africa. And now we're in 20 major markets in Africa and Asia. Since 2012, we've reached about 10 million people. So its growth has been huge. But its initial purpose when it came to existence was to target and try and support the Ebola crisis happening in West Africa. So how mobile could be used to get information to people, to collect data on spread of the disease. And then since then, it's grown and grown. And it was, I think the name Voto came out of the idea of being able to vote. So it was also being used amongst for elections or, you know, good governance and allowing the everyday person to be able to engage in the electoral process um, through the use of their mobile phone. And we focus on data collection, so mobile-based surveying, hotline services, allowing people to ring in, register grievances, or to get information. And then our main service, which is in partnership with HNI, is 321, which is a service, a kind of one-stop shop for people to call in and get access to information if they don't have access to the internet. It must be extremely rewarding to work in the telecom space, but actually, you know, on something which is not just about mobile network operators increasing their revenues. I mean, (laughs) from my perspective, that's what this industry is about. And everybody's looking to do something more and to give something back. I can appreciate it's very rewarding to work for such a service. Yeah, it's incredibly rewarding. And no one day is the same. I I never thought that I would learn the importance of spacing between cassava plants or, you know, the importance of uh, weather alerts for farmers living in northern Tanzania, for example. So, the breadth of what we can offer and the sectors we can have a role it is, it's huge and, and it's incredibly exciting actually. It's really inspiring the work that you're doing and I'm very impressed with the steps you've taken and just the guts that you have to go into these markets and to do this kind of thing. On diversity and inclusion, 
would you say this is a challenging market for women to work in? The telecoms industry especially is very male-dominated, and I became very aware of that very quickly with one visit to Mobile World Congress as part of the GSMA, which I'm sure you're familiar with. So I think it is, and it is hard, and there are have there been various conversations during my time at GSMA and especially my time now at the Army where being a woman definitely sets you apart from the people that you're dealing with. Also being a foreigner definitely impacts you know, my ability to engage with people or, you know, local MNOs on the ground. And it's hard and it's frustrating and it's an additional kind of strain on your ability to do your day-to-day work. But I think as a woman in this industry, you just have to do your homework. You just have to not drop a ball because if you drop a ball, you validate the stereotype. I referenced about going and installing a server in a data center, even just to be able to pass security clearance to give the assurance that I knew what I was doing. I think the fact that I was a woman (laughs) made them more skeptical than perhaps if I'd been a man. So it is hard, and definitely myself and other women in the industry, I know echo the same sentiments, but I think it's changing. I think people are more conscious of it. I think it's still a problem that definitely needs to be addressed. But definitely a really exciting space, and I hope that more women are, are kind of encouraged to go into it. I know I, there's an assumption that it is heavy tech, and I spend days coding, but definitely within the MCD space and the work that we do, it's so diverse. So some days are incredibly tech heavy, but other days are incredibly qualitative, and I'm out speaking to users, and I'm using other skills to engage with them on, on how we can improve our service. So, so it does depend. I think this is incredibly inspiring and it's amazing the steps you've taken as an individual to kind of get into this sector and to follow what drives you, you know. I think that that's really fantastic. Hannah, thank you so much for your time. This has really been a pleasure to speak to you and I wish Baimo and you a very good 2018 and best of luck with all your projects. Thanks so much, Jason. It's a pleasure speaking with you today. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Look out for more in the Well Connected series in the coming weeks. If you're an MNO, enterprise or vendor, you might be interested in participating in our messaging strategy surveys, focused on understanding what are the next trends in messaging. All you need to do to take part is just click on the survey for your business type on our research projects page. For your time spent in the survey, Rocco will send you free strategic content created from the feedback across all three surveys. Until next time, this is Jason Bryan and you've been listening to Well Connected from Rocco Radio.